Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Before we begin, I'd like to make sure the listener knows that I post many writings and links to books and videos in our episode notes. So please, um, you know, you may find it interesting. Uh, You'll definitely get a deeper dive into the podcast episode if you go ahead and take a look at those episode notes and follow the links to suggested readings or writings and also to videos on our YouTube channel, which is called Sension One. Please feel encouraged and appreciated to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Sension One, and also on our business page on Facebook, which carries the name of the dojo, Sension Center. Also, if you find you have found all these writings and videos, hours and hours and pages of pages, helpful or interesting or motivating, um, please feel encouraged and again appreciated to donate to our efforts via our Patreon page. Links to the Patreon page is also in the episode notes at Patreon. We are, again, going by the dojo's name, Ascension Center. Any donation of any size is greatly appreciated and, of course, needed. Let's get on with the episode. I received a Facebook message from a fellow path walker in London, and he was kind enough to share the following quote. Tradition is not the worship of ashes. It is the preservation of fire. He shared this quote in relation to a sentiment I have expressed often through the podcast and and through our videos, and that is that the modern Aikidoka has to really perform a kind of archaeology to get past all the degenerative elements and aspects, all the corruptions that various institutions and even people that stand in the way of understanding the art more fully and in the way of seeing O-sensei more accurately. You know, too often we moderns, because of the way modernity arose, we see the past as something 
inferior. The theory of evolution, which preceded Darwin's application of it into the biological sciences, for a long time was in use to look at others as lesser beings. And moderns now take that theory for granted, which is why often a lot of the books that I recommend have to do with the fact that it's still called a theory of evolution. Because in truth, outside of popular culture, it's far from a settled position. There's a lot of controversy surrounded, surrounding it. Of course, from its ties to colonialism, but also just in terms of sound reasoning. And the modern Aikidoka who just swallows What Aikido has become, without question, is really doing themselves a disservice. You have to uncover, dig down deep, past all this crap, for things to really start making sense. The worst thing you can do is just to accept it as it is presented today. The second worst thing you can do is you get some inkling that this doesn't make sense. You know, for example, there is a growing voice, especially in first world Aikido, that the art is not supposed to have a martial aspect. And that doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't know they have to do this archaeology. They instead think, well, I don't buy hook, line, and sinker, this modern understanding, but I'm going to give it a different modern understanding. This is the second mistake we can make. We need to get back to the original understanding. We need to know the history. We got to do an archaeology beyond all of the revisionist history that's been utilized by the powers that be. The ones that have an interest in what is presented today. That's the archaeology I'm talking about. And so that quote is very, very, rele very relevant. There's some kind of egotism to 
this theory of evolution. Obviously, it functioned at the heart of colonialism, and it functions in the way of a kind of historical colonialism. Everyone before us is an idiot. I like the other view. When I was a historian, the view that I found quite productive was not one of prioritizing my own time and space or my own culture, but figuring out how a different time, a different culture, a different area made sense of the world. It kind of levels the playing field. You see, there's no evolution of thought. There's only a variation of thinking. And it's clear Aikido, as it is presented today, makes no sense. But if you strip this evolutionary egocentrism from our reactivity to the, the fact that Aikido today makes no sense, if you understand that there's just variations in thought, you open the possibility of the question, what was Aikido like when it made sense? And that brought me to another email I received from another listener of the podcast. He came upon a writing um, on our website. So if you go to our website... I can't even tell you how many writings are on there. Um, it's a lot, and it's all free. Hence the request for donations. So at some point in my past, I had written a, an article titled O Sensei, Omotokyo Theology, and Ichide Shikon Sangen Hachiriki. And again, another fellow pathwalker, he had some questions on the article, and to be honest, I didn't even remember the article. I had to ask him to send the link to me, okay? So I will post in the, call, in the episode notes the link to this writing. So he had some questions uh, about it, and he was kind enough to also share another piece of writing with me um, that, you know, it's, it again hits the nail on the head. And we're going to go into what's that nail. Okay, So I'm going to, uh, if you want to read the full writing, just follow the link in the episode notes. I'm going to kind of give an abridged 
reading of this writing, I don't know how long this is going to take because this is some dense stuff. And I would like to tie this into the need of doing an archaeology as I described earlier. But we're just going to go. We'll see where, we'll see how long, damn behold, how long this takes. Again, if you go to, so I trained, I have trained all over the world in Aikido. Um, in many ways, the program that I run at our dojo exists because I never, I never found it anywhere else. What I saw what I experienced, and if you're outside this experience, you know, peace be with you and bless you. But it is not uncommon that most Aikido classes are really intellectual-based, logocentric, operate through a if-then if then pedagogy and consists primarily of a class leader either arbitrarily or superficially coming upon some number of kihonwaza to practice for a short duration each, and you just do that for the hour. Most classes are an hour. And the next day you just repeat. There's really no building upon anything. There's no uh, aiming of instruction towards the actual people on the mat. Everybody is expected to learn through what, in essence, is a kind of generic instructional process. Come to the dojo, do some superficial cleaning for cleaning's sake, go through some sort of ritual, which we don't treat as a ritual in the pre-modern sense, but we have some sort of ritual we perform, Many of us don't know what we're performing or why we're performing that ritual. Stretch out, warm up. We're going to do some physical exercise. That exercise is going to consist of some techniques. You do the techniques and you go do another ritual and then you're done. Somewhere in there, especially more and more in first world Aikido Dojo, there's a lot of talking. And with that talking comes the idea that um, you can actually learn or know or transform the self through discussion. Well, all of that is all modern crap. It's not how the pre-modern people use the technology of Buddha. 
And it's no coincidence that that we've changed the technology and we do not yield the same results. Which is why Aikido is basically impotent. And as I've said earlier, it's impotent martially and spiritually. Because it, it, it would be like we have some pretty fantastic cars right now. And the chairs are pretty comfortable. And some of them come with screens big enough, you know, that they kind of resemble televisions. And imagine some future generation where cars have stopped for, for a long time and um, they come upon a car. And instead of realizing this is a vehicle that gets you from one place to the other in relative comfort and safety and, and quickly, they're like, oh, check out this living room, man. And as living rooms go, as comfortable as vehicles are, as cars are, a car is pretty crappy as a living room. It's like that future generation has no idea how the vehicle works, that it is a vehicle even. And they start having to use it for something else. And in that new capacity, it's really quite crappy. That's kind of what's happened happening to Aikido. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is that Aikido, like many other um, traditions, many other institutions of the past, any of them that existed at the time of the epistemic shift from pre-modern to the scientific episteme, those institutions got a raw deal, historically speaking. They became the targets, so to speak, of this theory of evolution. They, they became the target and they became the, the least understood. And Aikido existed in Japan during that time. And in O-sensei in particular, no doubt there were Japanese who were way more modern than him. There's something particular about him. As Japan was moving from pre-modern to modern, O-sensei himself was quite archaic. In other words, he took part in discourses and educational systems, economic systems that were far from the most updated ones present during his lifetime. So when you go to a dojo today, you don't. You, it's not uncommon that you never hear of a motokyo. You don't even what? What are you talking about? You don't hear about one of its co-founders, Oni Saburu. You ne you never hear that name. Who? And sure as hell, it is very rare that you hear anything as esoteric 
as Ichide Shinkon Sangen Hachiriki. You, you know, what are you talking about? I don't even think, no. That's not Aikido. But if you do this archaeology, you soon, you soon learn, holy cow, what, what was I doing? What did they tell me I was doing? You realize how much you have missed and why things don't make sense. And this is key then. If I want my practice to make sense, which means if I want it to function reasonably, if I want the sum of its parts to actually make a whole that is viable, incapable of something as so complex as self-transformation or the cultivation of spiritual maturity, I better do this archaeology. Because all they want me to do now is talk about things and exercise. So this article goes into this, and I'm going to set the context of this article up. I don't, I'm not, I used to be an academic, but I'm, I'm probably the most anti-academic former academic there is. And the reason is because as I did my, my historiography, as I did my history studies, I realized That academia, the academic, the intelligentsia is so much a part of that ethnocentric, the unquestioned adoption of that theory of evolution. And as such, it is the biggest load of crap. They are producers of jargon. Like Uber Boyo says, they're jargonites. They're not doers. They're a, spe a special class of useless people who are pressed by their uselessness to seek power and to commit war by other means. And those in the first world, you're, you're beginning to feel this. But I saw it coming in the 90s when I was there. I did 12 years of bachelor's, master's, and doctorate studies in the history of religions with an emphasis on Japanese religious culture and the history of thought. And that same kind of jargonite culture 
has come into Aikido because those jargonites in the ivory halls have been spreading their poison everywhere. And if you're in a first world country, which is another one of their jargons, you feel this way more. So this article doesn't have a date with it because I don't give a shit. I'm after the ideas and I'm only after the ideas in terms of how they help develop my practice or better said, how they help me to shut up. I'm only interested in the ideas so I can stop being a jargonite. So at this time, if I can, if I remember correctly, and maybe there's listeners out there who do remember, because I, at a certain time I used to write for Aikido Journal and Aiki Web, and it was during that time. And um, the books, his name is skipping my mind now. See, I try to take all this out, um, but all those popular books on Aikido, uh, John Stevens. Those had been out already. And as a scholar of Japanese religious culture, I was like, oh my gosh, dude, you're so off the mark. And that goes ahead and that, that spreads its position. Uh, and a lot of people who don't do Japanese religious history, they that's their only source of information. And so they buy it too. And there was a lot of talk going around about what was Aikido according to O-sensei on Aikiweb and Aikido Journal. And to me as a historian, the, the question is obvious. You don't, you don't have to go to O-sensei. You, know, you, could go, you could start there, but you're definitely not going to end there. Because if you just did a little digging, like very superficial digging, you would know, oh, this, this guy's not making this up. He's actually just applying the theology of Omotokyo. That's what he's doing. So the next step is, okay, what does Omotokyo say? What is Omotokyo's theology? I thought it was, it's kind of silly to keep talking about what O Sensei was like, and, and everyone has their modern interpretation of it. As a historian, you would just go to the source. Let me go to the source. Oh, look, here's what it is. Oh, that's what he means. So that's where this piece was written. That was the context. So we're going to jump around in this piece. We're going to we're going to figure out as this piece was figure out do that archaeology what is Aikido? Then we're going to you have to go a little further. What did O sensei say was, was Aikido? Oh, 
oh, he's just applying a multicultural theology. Okay, let's go to a multicultural theology, and then we should know what Aikido was to him. Pre-modern. So this piece starts out, um, well, let me give more context on this. I'm not uh, interpreting anything in this piece. And I have my own opinion, obviously. If you want to know my opinion on things, I'll give some at the end um, because I would like to reply to the email that pointed me to this article. Um, and I'll let you know, this part's my opinion, this is my position. Because even then, I'm not really interested in O-sensei's Aikido. I appreciate the archaeology, the need for it, because i got to get through all this modernized crap. But I'm after my own practice. Meaning... The authenticity of my own practice comes from it being my own practice. It is not made more authentic because I'm doing O-sensei's practice. So I'm not really interested in O-sensei's Aikido. Uh, you know, if, he, if this is what Aikido was to him, that is how I understand it. This is what Aikido was to him. I think that's interesting, and I think that helps people on the path. But if you take that next step, this is what Aikido was to O-sensei, so this is what it has to be for me. I think you're a jargonite. So this piece starts out, um, and as I said, we're not going to, to read it all over. So, um, But everything in here is from Omotokyo's um, you know, textual efforts. Their books, their pamphlets, their website. Um, and you can go look this up on your own because Omotokyo is a very tiny religion, but it's very out there. They remind me of those Aikido Dojo that have a big online presence. Like They look like they're doing a lot of work. There's barely any class times and there's barely any actual members. But the teacher is like all over the place. It gives the air that they're big, a big presence. But they're really tiny. But Motokyo is like that. Gives the air that it's a, one more world religion right there on par with the other world religions. So world religion is a phrase that scholars use to describe Islam, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, the, these kind of things, like the major religions. Omotokyo wanted to be in that group, so they act and talk like that. So their information is out there. There's really no difficulty in gaining it. So when I answer, the, when I ask the question, 
what is a Motokyo theology, what is Ichirei, Shikon, Sangen, Hachiriki, and I answer it, it's just what a Motokyo is saying those things are. And that information is taken from their literature, their websites. They don't even require any translation because they want to be a world religion. It's, it's actually in English and it's in other languages. It's even in Esperanto. And a lot of people don't, even, don't know what Esperanto is. Um, but at one time, there, there was this, this, this goal to create um, this single language. You know, to establish a single global community and one way of doing it was to have everyone speak this kind of international global language and that was Esperanto. No one uses it. It was a dead language that was never born, but Omotokyo still hangs on to it. So all the information, all, all the theology comes from Omotokyo literature and all the quotes, all the passages, and I'll tell you when I'm quoting something, comes from uh, the Aikido journal. And that, that is the tra those are translations done by um, Stanley Prannan, which are fine. Okay, so this article starts with a, a, a thing that a historian, as I was, pays attention to, okay? Because I was a historian of thought, and I, w I specialized in the gap from the pre-modern epistemy to the modern epistemy. And as I said, one, what you see there is kind of like a discursive battle takes place as ages change paradigms and that battle takes many shapes but one of them is I don't understand what you're saying anymore because it's one way of thinking talking to another way of thinking and we all know that those shihan those shihan that are the most responsible for bringing Aikido into first world nations were Aikidoka who repeatedly said, I had no idea what he's talking about. What you want to understand, those are moderns listening to a pre-modern speak. Even though they're speaking both Japanese, they're not speaking the same Japanese. Words change meanings and words disappear and new words come. Language has a history just like thought has a history. So this piece starts with a passage by Kishimaru, O-sensei's son. And he's commenting on O-sensei. The article at Aikido Journal is titled Founder of Aikido, Day In and Day Out Training. So here's the quote. 
There was an extremely unworldly quality about his lectures on the Aiki path. From his main points or way of developing their content to his manner of talking, sometimes he would reveal the workings of the universe through the interrelationship between the Ichire Shikon Sangen Hachiriki, one spirit, four souls, three sources, eight powers of ancient Shinto. On other occasions, he would jump to the subject of the hardships of settling in Hokkaido. Then, in the next instant, he would make a complete turnabout and remark that, quote, Aikido is the wondrous result of Kotodama, unquote. Mentioning, for example, the connection between the workings of the Su sound and the U sound of Kotodama and breath power. Then suddenly, he would shift to describing incidents of martial prowess from the time he was in his prime. That is to say, he would freely describe the spontaneous knowledge, insights, and images which came and went in his mind like lightning jumping from this topic to that. Moreover, subjects like more profound principles of theology would often suddenly pop up without the least regard to the circumstances, and even his stories of martial valor contain references to his theory of the spirit, mind, and body supplemented by practical examples. End of the passage. So from the history of thought, what you want to jump in on is, why does it feel like it's all over to the listener? Is it truly that? Are these the rantings of a madman? Or is it, as I suggest, another age's way of thinking? So this article goes on to demonstrate how it does make sense. Here's, here's what it is. Here's how it makes sense. So just to touch base on some of our earlier podcast episodes, this epistemology, this pre-modern episteme is one that I have called uh, concentric. Now, it is the concentric nature of that way of thinking that allows this, what we would look at as, whoa, this is convoluted and this is uh, circular in its reasoning and there's no way this makes sense. But from, an, from a concentric episteme, these things can very well be all the same thing. The sound, su, is very much breath power or kokyu. And kokyu is a very much martial valor and martial prowess. And it is the facing of hardships on frontiers 
but you have to figure out how how is it all the same thing or it does not make sense you have to drop the ethnocentricity and say it doesn't make sense to me because i'm thinking differently because I've been raised to think differently. But let me see how it makes sense to him by understanding how he's thinking. And that's what we do here. So you want to find out how he's thinking? Just go to a Motokyo theology. Okay, so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to jump ahead in the article. Again, if you want to read it all, just follow the link in the episode notes. Here's in the articles where it starts with the Motokyo theology. It's on page four, so imagine how much setup there is. Let us ask, what is Ichirei Shikon Sangen Hachiriki? according to a Motokyo theology. Ichire, or one spirit, is a reference to the spiritual aspect of the ultimate deity, the Creator God, God in capital letters, the one and only God, etc. This God is the essence of all religions and all traditions. That is to say, for example, there is no difference between this God and the God of the Christian Bible. They are the same. There is not a Japanese they, this is not a Japanese kami in the traditional sense. So let's let's do a little uh, break there. Often it is said that Aikido um, Aikido theology or Aikido philosophy is Shinto based. And this is not true. Omotokyo has it has you know some toes in Shinto, but it is part of what scholars call a new religion in Japan. And these new religions, especially Omotokyo, was heavily influenced by all kinds of other traditions. They they are syncretic in nature. They used that concentric epistemy to allow for that. This is why uh, Omotokyo early on got in on the world religions movement, like the parliament of world religions, which was a meeting after the horrors of the world wars and, and the possibility of world war. Man, being manifested, they were like, we have to figure out what is common amongst all people. And what they landed on was mystical communion. So there was an organized effort at the turn of the, you know, near the turn of the 20th century, late 1800s, early 1900s, to start thinking about, yeah, we're going to kill each other if we don't figure out where our common ground rests. And when all these people got together, they landed on mystical communion. And that movement heavily influenced Onisaburu 
Budo, who is the co-founder of Omotokyo. Now, even that word co-founder is not wholly accurate. Because if you take him out of the equation, there would have been no Omotokyo. Again, not not well known. So his uh, partner, so, so to speak, uh, you know, she was a kind of shaman in a very traditional sense of the word in, in Japanese shamanism. Meaning, um, you know, she would enter into an ecstatic state and uh, from within that ecstatic state, she would utter some unintelligible rantings and someone else would come and interpret those. Usually a male. There's a lot of, um, you know, archetypical thought and practice going on here. And those those ideas or that information that she garnered or that were garnered from her ecstatic state were aimed at producing very uh, worldly ends, like good health, you know, a son to be born, good fortune kind of things. It was only Sabudo who who got in touch with this larger world movement and saw an opportunity in the possession practices of this movement by making them akin to if this is one more representation of mystical communion which the international religious movement was banking on. It actually led to um, disagreements and conflicts between the two. Because he wasn't into, hey, let's make sure you have a son. That was not the point. The point was world peace. Not good luck, not good fortune. Not finding a husband for your daughter or a wife for your son. It was world peace. It was heaven on earth. So in tying into that, Omoto-kyo borrowed from that religious movement and said, and, and use the mystical discourse of all religions that have some sort of consciousness or deity or being that is beyond everything else. It is beyond language. It is beyond dichotomy. It is beyond space and time. And that is why it's the same God that's in the Christian Bible. Now, undoubtedly, 
there have been in the long history of Christianity, there have been discourses that posit that the God I am is some sort of genie in the sky. But there has equally been mystical traditions that speak of God as I just have. It's unknowable, beyond language, beyond thought. Most of Catholicism's monastic traditions are born out of this. It's like uh, there's this kind of going back and forth. The church goes ahead and makes this genie in the sky, and a monastic order springs up and goes, no, that's not it. And for a while, they're threatening to the church, and then the church kind of acclimates them or, or brings them into the fold, and then a new monastic order has to come up again and go, no, that's not it. But at this time of the World Parliament of Religions, that's the deity they're talking about. And Omotokyo was involved and in talking about that same sense of de deity. And in that sense, it's not the Japanese kami in the traditional sense. Japanese kami, in its own indigenous sense, is very particular to place and to kinship it's not this broad, universal consciousness kind of thing. This, hence, Omotokyo is a new religion. It's not Shinto. So going on. Understanding this deity as the universal being of all creation of the universe, etc., is central to Omotokyo's mission of attempting to establish peace on earth by propagating what is common to all mankind, that which is beyond race and creed, etc. This being has many manifestations, but is mainly known as Kamususa no Wodo Okami. I'm not going to say that name anymore. We're just going to say God. It is in God that Omotokyo posits the possibility for achieving mystical union. That is, a reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy. That is the mystical experience. Which Omotokyo considers a part of God's plan i.e. establishing an age of peace, love, wisdom, etc. on earth. So common to new religions and common to this international movement is this sense. It, this is interesting. I, I, this is very interesting, but I don't want to go into it much. But well, there was this sense that heaven on earth or paradise on earth or whatever positive age, it had to be communal. We take for granted, we're like, what's the big deal? No, no, no. There are other traditions that 
whatever positive achievement or positive state of being, it's not a communal state of being. For example, Buddhahood is not a communal sense of being. Uh, you know, it's, it's not about paradise on earth through community in paradise. There, this, this religious movement, this theology involves that salvation or paradise or heaven has to be a communal event. Not everyone thought like that, but Motokyo did. Back to the piece. That is to say, according to Motokyo theology, there is a relationship between our capacity to practice and receive love, for example, and our capacity to seek and gain a union with God. So this this is what O Sensei is always talking about. So in the Motokyo theology, there is a relationship between the capacity to practice and receive love and our capacity to seek and gain a union with God. What makes such a union possible is that the Spirit of God, Ichide, is in all things, in all people, in the entire universe, in all creation. Now, here's why this is a, a theology. And if you listen to my other podcast, I talk about how there's three cultural movements. The first one is the experiencer. So there's three cultural movements involved with religious thought. Do you have the experiencer? You have the mystic who has the communion experience. They have the ecstasy. Then after that, you have a bunch of people who don't have the experience. They're now riding on the method. They don't have an experience. They just have a method that's supposed to lead to the experience. And I have labeled that, that's the priestly class. And then you have people who don't practice the method, but they now write on the method itself. There, it's a meta-discourse. Those are the academics. Those are the jargonites. So right now, you're in the priestly class moment. When you have a theology, you're in the priestly class moment. You have somebody who's trying to explain... Why is it possible to have mystical communion? That's what's going on here. That is what this is all about. What is Ichire Shikon Sangen Hachiriki about? It is a philosophical discussion on how mystical union, mystical communion with this being or this consciousness or this this whatever that is beyond all language and all thought and all understanding and that is everywhere, how gaining communion with whatever that is that I can't even say, how is that possible? Well, let me tell you how it's possible. That's what this is. So as a side note here, this is all bullshit. 
Because this will never lead to the ecstatic experience. This is written for people who don't have the experience by people who hadn't had the experience. You have to keep that in mind. But it's still, you know what? I'm getting deeper. I'm doing my archaeological excavation and I'm getting deeper. And I'll get back to this at the end. Back to the piece. Therefore, what is most natural for humans, what is most harmonious with all of creation, is to seek this union out, to realize this union for oneself, to become aware of this union through the very fibers of our being, which themselves are thoroughly saturated with the Spirit of God each day. O Sensei writes, this is a quote of O Sensei, translated by Aikido Journal. Mankind's role is to fulfill his heaven-sent purpose through a sincere heart that is in harmony with all creation and loves all things. Now, why is that? How is that possible? This question has been asked many times in East Asian religious thought. You know, they, they would ask like, okay, I get awakening. Let's say, say in Buddhism, I get awakening, but how is it possible? The whole discourse on Buddha nature is the same kind of answer. You see, how, how is it possible that I can go from a state of ignorance to a state of enlightenment? Because enlightenment already exists in you. What is that? That's your Buddha nature. It's the same answer here. How can I, who is not in communion with this deity, get into communion with this deity because the deity is already in you? It's like a logic problem. It's like, uh, how do I get yogurt from milk? Because milk's in yogurt. It's like that. That's what Ichidei is. It establishes the possibility for mystical communion. And, and that model, as I just stated, like for example in the Buddha nature discourse, it's everywhere. It is everywhere throughout history, across the globe. The second the priestly class gets a hold of the practice. It, this is everywhere. What makes communion possible? Because there's an aspect of the thing you're communing with already in you. Here's a side note, back to the piece. Uh, which goes into more Motokyo theology. Note, before going on to explain how we realize Ichidei and or do not realize it, and without getting too trapped in the circular or concentric logic of Motokyo theology, it might be interesting to point out that Kama Suzanoo, or God, is represented with the Kotodama Su, which we already heard from Kishimaru or Sensei used to talk about. So that sound is representative of this thing, this, be, this deity. 
and is understood as the source of both yin and yang, so that would make it concentric with the Tao, and is also considered a hypostasis of the Buddha, of Jesus, of Bodhidharma, and of Kung Su, Confucius. This, this is, as I said, a multi-kill is a syncretic tradition. Now, why would it, why would it be possible to say uh, that this deity is representative of the Buddha, of Jesus, Bodhidharma, and Kung Su is because those other traditions also seek this kind of reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy per that world, uh, that parliament of world religions. And it's true. They do. Not all schools of the Buddha, not all schools of Jesus, not all schools of Bodhidharma, and not all schools of Kung Su. But yes, when you go deep enough, you do enough archaeology and those schools, this is accurate. Continuing the note, if we look at O Sensei's lectures from this point of view, the point of view of God being all things, all beings, all actions, and all ideas, perhaps differently from Kishimaru, we would not come to think of O Sensei's discussions as jumping all over the place. This is something I said earlier. He's not talking about different things. Via the theology of Ichide, he's only talking about God. Continuing, as Ichide is the spiritual essence of all that is, Omotokyo has no problem expressing the mystical union it advocates as a oneness with nature, or with ourselves, or with the universe, or with heaven and earth. This is because Ichide is in all of those things. These phrases all mean the same thing at the theological level in Omotokyo. However, Though all of creation shares a singular spiritual essence, and though it is most natural for us as humans to seek out this essence, a mystical union with God is not the inevitable conclusion to our existence. Now, this is key. And this, this problem arose too with the Buddha nature, the discourse of the Buddha nature. Like a, a, a lot of... Um, Zen departures came from this. So, you know, when you first, when they first asked the question, how do I, how do I go from this uh, being that is, you know, unenlightened to an enlightened being? What allows for that possibility? And somebody goes, yes, because the Buddha nature is already in you and you just have to figure it out. Some people were like, well, wait a minute. Um... What does that mean? I, I don't necessarily figure it out. And some schools were like, yeah, yeah, of course, that's what it means. And other schools were like, no, 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 no. In fact, you, Buddha nature is already in you. You don't even have to do anything. And you had like, you know, jargonites who were like, oh, I guess I don't have to do any practices now. I'm, I'm out. See ya. But as you learned in our last one of our last podcast episodes, the one on Buddha and Mara, you got you got some explaining to do because the Buddha continued his practice and 
struggled with Mara all the way up to his death. You're looking at an academic phase at that point. The jargonite. And there's a lot of jargonites like that in Aikido right now. They're like changing words. Do you see? They're into meta discourses. Like, well, what do you mean by fighting? Let's understand what fighting means. And it gets super complicated beyond your fist trying to hit my face. Well, there's many ways of self-defense. This is jargonite stuff. So you had jargonites. You have jargonites in all these traditions because the academic phase is a part of the cultural history of all of these traditions. So sooner or later, somebody's going to say, I already have the Buddha nature. I don't have to do Buddhism. I'm already awakened. And then people start talking like that. You just have to realize you're already awakened. Now you start changing it. Now you don't have a car. You have this crappy living room. So in a Motokyo theology... The Spirit of God is in all things. Ichide. But it is not a given that you will reach communion. It just allows for the possibility of it. There's ways you can jack it up. And, you know, probably the... And again, this is expressed throughout history and throughout the world. And probably the most... You know, in our, in our culture, probably the most common example of this is the Garden of Eden. Like, oh, you know, hey, you had it good, but you effed it up, and now you're out. It's it's a it's another kind of uh, using mythic discourse to explain that um, while it's possible, it it doesn't mean it's inevitable. And some traditions go so far, and since we've been talking about Buddhism. It's not even probable. There's way more people practicing Buddhism who are not awakened than are awakened. And everyone knows that. And that has always been true. There's a way to jack it up. Continuing, for various reasons relevant to the age we are living in, we are both incapable of this oneness and of practicing love. Remember, those two are interrelated, which is God's inherent and most overriding nature. As a result, true love or real love is not available to us in our lives if the spirit is not cultivated toward that end. This is why it sets it up. So it's possible for communion, but I have to do some practices. Otherwise, I won't reach that communion. We see this idea when O-sensei writes, While mankind has the ability to unify with the universe, 
the fact that he is unable to accomplish this union is his unhappy condition. You're going to have to do something. It's possible, but you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to have some practices. There has to be more than just a possibility. So, okay, now we go into, well, what do I, what do I have to do? Fill me in. Continuing. The spiritual essence of God, Ichide, that is in us as humans is called the Naohi. Again, this idea expressed throughout the world's mystical tradition. So, uh, let's say in subcontinent India, you'll have the Brahman and the Atman. There's, there's that, that unknowable, beyond everything deity is out there, and the part that's in you is this Atman. Brahman out there, Atman in you. Or God out there, soul in you. It is this now he that allows us as moral beings to determine right from wrong, evil from good, beauty from ugliness, etc. In other words, our conscious is not only the voice of God, it is the spiritual essence of God. It is this aspect of God that interacts with the four soul aspects or the shikon that are also inside of us. Shikon or the four soul aspects are Aramitama, Nigimitama, Sachimitama, and Kushimitama. Each one of these aspects corresponds to a human virtue in terms of an essence and in terms of a set of functions. The four soul aspects are broken down thusly. Aramitama, its essence is audacity, and its functions are willingness, resolve, perseverance, diligence, and fortitude. Now, audacity is like a bad word for us today. Like, you know, someone's audacious, not good. But here, and again, this is how it is often expressed in these mystical traditions throughout history across the globe. Audacity is, for example, when Mara showed up to the Buddha who's meditating under the Bodhi tree and has the balls to say, I will not move until I will reach awakening. Meaning he is saying, I get your probability statistics, but I'm going to do it. And Mara shows up and says, who are you to be trying to do this? And he has the audacity to just point at Mother Earth and say, this is my witness that I will do it. That's, that's what we mean by audacity. And, and Omoto Kyo has kept this word. And even, um, I remember there were some translations of Osensei's writing that Stanley Pranin did, and he actually he kept the word audaciousness or audacity in there. But and it's right on the money. So good for him that he didn't go with no. I can't be audacity. That sounds like pride. No, you need to have this perseverance, this resolve, where you do not doubt in the face of all doubters that you can do this you can draw you can jump 
and bridge that prop probability canyon. I, I can do this no matter what. I have the resolve. Audacity, in other words, as these others are, is both what is being cultivated through your practice, but also what is necessary for you to endure the practices. The next one, Nigimitama. Its essence is affinity, and its functions are peace, discipline, order, governance, and association. Sachimitama. Its essence is love, and its functions are benefit, creation, production, evolution, and nurture. Kushimitama. Its essence is wisdom, and its functions are skill, sensibility, observation, awareness, and enlightenment. So if you look at the essence of every one of these, every one of the shikon, the four soul aspects, you have audacity, affinity, love, and wisdom. So in this is now my own teachings. These are the Aiki aspects. These are the communion aspects. If you just look at a human-to-human -human relationship and you were to pick four essences that allow for let, let's not even say communion between the two parties, but let us say the, absent, the absence of a corrupting distance between the two parties. If you were to ask, what do I need to prevent the generation of a corrupting distance between me and my partner? You're going to see, oh, this is what I need. I need audacity, the functions of willingness, resolve, perseverance, diligence, and fortitude. Let's take, let's make this partnership a marriage. I have the audacity to hold that I will not end in divorce like 50% of my nation's marriages do. Divorce is not an option for me. I have willingness, I have resolve, I have perseverance, diligence, and fortitude. No matter how tough this marriage gets, divorce is not a possibility. I have no quit. You're going to need affinity. You're going to need its functions of peace, discipline, order, 
governance and association. You're going to have to stop living in a disharmonious, distance-causing way. You're not going to talk about that small crap because it's just going to cause problems. Or you're going to talk about it in a way that it doesn't set up a me versus you. You're going to practice the team concept at all times. You're never going to shit in bed. And you're going to need love. You're going to need the functions of benefit, of creativity, of production, evolution, and nurture. You have to do that to your partner, for your partner, with your partner. And these are not enough. You're going to need wisdom. You're going to need the functions of skill, sensibility, observation, awareness, and enlightened thinking. You're going to have to be fear, or free of your own fears, your own pride, and your own ignorance. You're going to need wisdom. Or you will destroy your relationship without knowing it. These four things, this shikon, is both the essence and function of communion. And in the way that they would save my marriage, they take advantage of the possibility of communion with the divine. Continuing. The aspect of the one spirit, Ichide, and the four soul aspects, Shikon, interact within and through us as certain, as certain moral essences audacity, affinity, love, and wisdom. And they are measured up against our conscious, the now he. So how, well, how do you figure this out? How do, how do you figure it out? Don't worry. It's in you. The now he is in you. That's how you figure You just got to listen, man. You just got to act in accordance what you already know. So it's like in our kids' class. I, you know, the kids that are violating the etiquette, they already know the etiquette. And all our etiquette is based upon safety and social harmony. And they know the etiquette. And how I correct it is saying, do what you know. It's the same concept. This allows us to cultivate those virtues, willingness, resolve, discipline, association, nurture, sensibility, awareness, etc., that mark the spiritual life. 
In turn, these things come to produce five kinds of self-applied drives or capacities. Again, this is a Motokyo theology. These drives or capacities are the drives or capacities necessary for pursuing a union with God. This is what I already talked about. Okay. What are the drives per Motokyo? They are a drive to examine oneself, a capacity to experience a sense of shame, a drive to repent, a capacity to revere, and a capacity to awaken to truth. All oh, that, these things are big problems for moderns. Sense of shame. I lived my whole life trying not to be ashamed. But in every spiritual tradition, Shame is weaponized to produce transformation. So you have in you this now he, and when you're bouncing back and forth between the now he and the ichi day, in the in in the mindful practice of that, right? These four already embedded in you, these four soul aspects, the essence, audacity, affinity, love, and wisdom already in you starts to govern your action, let's say, with the drive to examine yourself, to experience a sense of shame. So I examine myself to see am I approximating for example, the wisdom of communion. Or if I don't do that, if I don't do this self-examination, I cannot, I cannot transform myself. I cannot improve. I cannot cultivate myself. This is very much like people who train mindlessly. They train out a habit. How many times have you been at a seminar? The teacher is doing demonstrated a variant on Ikkyo, and they're doing their normal Kihon Waza Ikkyo they do all the time at the dojo where they train. Why are you at the seminar then? When I was in the Federation, my direct teacher was responsible for filming summer camp. And on this day, he was not feeling well. It was near the end of his life. And he said to me, um, Dave, will you do the filming? Now, deep down, I was like, oh, this, oh, man, I want to train. And he's and he, I, he sensed it in me. You know, I didn't say that to him, but I'm sure it was like, sure, I, I'd love to film, right? So he goes, no, look, when you're filming, I want you to notice how no one is doing what Sensei is demonstrating. I want you to pan the giant gymnasium filled with mats and practitioners. This was in the day when Aikido had like, you know, there were four, 600 people at these camps. I want you to pan right to left and then pan back for each technique. 
And as you're looking through the viewfinder, I want you to try to find one pair of Naga and Uke who are actually demonstrating what Sensei's doing. And guess what? I didn't find one pair of Uke and Naga doing the same technique. Everyone was doing their own things. There was no self-examination and the lack of self-examination leads to a maintenance of ignorance. There's no possibility for training or cultivation or improvement or transformation. It is just the status quo being maintained. So you need this drive, the drive to examine yourself. But then you also need a drive or a capacity to experience a sense of shame, meaning I am not on the path right now. I observed myself and I can see that I'm off path. If that in some way does not become repellent to me, I will stay off path. What these mystical traditions, when I say they weaponize shame, is they use the emotion of repulsion to motivate and energize us back to approximate the path. You need it. If you're fine being wrong, you won't work to be right. If you're fine being unawakened, you won't work towards awakening. So remember, this is a theology. They are trying to explain through discourse what the mystic does without discourse. They're trying to make sense of it. Okay, you got to observe yourself. And then if you see you're off path, you can't be satisfied with that. You're going to have to be repelled from that so you can be attracted back to the path. To the path. And this attraction back to the path is coupled by this repulsion from off path. And this attraction to the path is this drive to repent. Which is related to a capacity to revere. Which is related to a capacity to awaken to truth. Now moderns, this is all very problematic. Can we get rid of the shame? Please, can we get that out? I don't like the idea of repenting. Don't like that. And this whole thing of revering, no thank you. I like the idea of awakening to truth. Well, the problem with that is once you take out off path and you take off repulsion from off path and you take out a sense that you shouldn't have been off path in the first place and that you should revere the path so you don't go off path, what is your truth? Your truth is as you are now. Meaning you have subverted all training. You have subverted the cultivation process. You're a jargonite. You already have the Buddha nature. All you got to realize, oh, okay, I realize it. Okay, you're the Buddha.
This is why Aikido spirituality is impotent. Is it? It is as impotent as Aikido martial. Uh, the martial aspect is impotent. Back to the piece. Ichirei Shikon then is formulaic is a formulaic breakdown of how and why we as human beings can and should pursue a mystical union with God. According to Omoto Kyo, one's spiritual journey should be marked by the drives or the capacities that come to us as part of our inner nature and as part of our efforts to follow the impulses of the now he and the cultivated virtues of the Shinkon. However, should we deny ourselves the natural inclination of allowing the now-he to guide our four soul aspects and thus prevent ourselves from cultivating both a sense of morality and a capacity for living a spiritual life, not only do we not cultivate within ourselves the drives or capacities necessary for a union with God, we also risk the overall corruption of our soul, when this occurs, each soul aspect degenerates respectively as hostility, depravity, rebellion, and insanity. So this means uh, Aramitama, its essence is audacity, degenerates into hostility. Affinity degenerates into depravity. Love degenerates into rebellion and wisdom generates into insanity. Thus, these things come to dominate our body-mind in terms of both thought and action, and we are thus reduced to the superficial, the material, and the delusion, etc. in our daily lives. This is perhaps the way we should understand O-sensei's recounting of the gold body incident. We might be wise in focusing in on the possible symbolic significance of gold, of becoming a being made of gold. For gold the world over is a symbol of material culture, selfish desire, superficial attachment, etc. Okay, let's set up this gold body incident. Um, depending on where you look, this, the, uh, let me, let's go back. O-sensei has shared this vision or this experience that he had. Um, and in it, he becomes a being made of a gold body. Now, depending where you look, people just focus in on that part. I have heard some people, some jargonites in Aikido, um, say that this is when O-sensei broke with Daito-ryu and started to develop his Aikido as a way of non-injury techniques, like less lethal techniques, you know, like the taser is to the handgun, which is a load of crap. That is... That is totally 100% historically false. 
You can look at when he said he had this experience, he's still calling what he's doing titled you at that time. And you can even look at the technical lexicon of what he was doing ever throughout his lifetime. It's just titled you. It's just not what we know after after um, the Federation's got a hold of it. It's not the whole of the titled you technical lexicon. But those techniques are that is modern day Aikido are in the technical lexicon of Daitoryu. It's just not the whole of Daitoryu's technical lexicon. Additionally, you can look at the fact that all these techniques are not only exclusive to Daitoryu. They're everywhere. They're even in arts that had no connection to the the Silk Road. There's European arts that have versions of Kotagaesh, for example. It wasn't because, oh, you know, Marco Polo had some access to the Silk Road and he brought back Kotagaesh. That's not what happened. But it's only these jargonites who claim Kotagaesh is non-lethal and non-injurious and is non-violent. And they tie this back to this this moment of becoming a golden body. Okay, this is totally wrong. But what is more interesting is that if you go on to, to finish reading what O-sensei says about this experience, you are clearly out in left field when you try to say what I just mentioned. It's very much when I'm reminded of how people look at... Um, Musashi's writing, and they emphasize the dueling part, the 60 duels. And if you read the next paragraph, he basically says, uh, I realized that didn't mean anything. It could have been all luck. I realized the heart of the martial arts after I stopped dueling. It's This gold body is like that as well. If you keep reading, O-sensei himself tells you how he understood this experience. So let's read the whole thing he says about it. Again, this is translated in the Aikido Journal. Quote, 30 years ago, I was extremely weak of body. At that time, I secretly harbored a dream. In this dream, I wanted to be the strongest man in all of Japan. No, More than that, in the entire world, I decided I would become the possessor of a martial power unequaled by anyone. With this dream before me, I trained severely. One day, a Navy man confronted me, a person said to be a seventh donholder in Kendo. Strangely, as I faced him, I felt as if my body was surrounded by a shining brightness and I easily secured victory. So a lot of people think that is the gold body. No, you don't have to read on. After that, however, a conceited feeling was born inside of me. And while walking through a garden, I thought that in 
I thought that innumerable golden threads came down to me from the universe. Then a golden light whelmed up from the earth and engulfed me. Eventually, I attained a feeling that my body was turned into a body of gold that expanded to universal proportions. Here, I felt that the gods or God was chastising me for my ever-growing conceit, and I cried tears of gratitude. All right, let's go into this for a little bit. 30 years ago, I was extremely weak of body. And at that time, I harbored a dream. What was the dream, O-sensei? I wanted to be the strongest man. Let's in, in my teaching, this is the fear-threat cycle of behavior. This is how many people do Aikido today. When the first mind aspect dominates us, or when the ego tripartite dominates us, when we are habitually reacting through our ego, through dichotomy, and through preferential slash avoidance behavioral patterns, I experienced the world as a threat. And because I am burdened or captured by dichotomy, my will to power thinks in delusion that I can stop this feeling of being threat if I only become more powerful than everyone else. So many people do Aikido like this. This is what colloquially I call is big man Aikido. They just look to overpower Uke. To, to many people, they, they say, that's martial Aikido. Again, I don't understand that concept because if I if my Aikido is martial because I overpower someone, in my opinion, that's not very viable because that means it only functions on people that are smaller, slower, weaker than I. That would be the antithesis of a viable martial art. But you see this big man Aikido everywhere. Thumbs up for big man Aikido. Thumbs up for big man Aikido. Not only, though, is it martially ineffective, but it's not Aikido. Because it's yang yang clashing. I push on what's pushing on me. Why do you push on what's pushing on you? Because it's threatening to me. And I will stop being threatened if I overpower it. That's how most of us live. We live in this fear threat reactivity cycle. We experience the world through fear. So we experience the world as threat. 
and we are confined to dichotomous thinking. So uh, you know what? I, I experience the world as contest and is filled with antagonists. And the only way I'm going to feel safe is to overpower it. This is not jujitsu. This is not Aikido. This is not yin yang theory. There, there's no aspect of this that has anything to do with Aikido. This is the antithesis of Aikido. And that is exactly what O-sensei is having here. Uh, I was extremely weak of body. How do you know you're extremely weak of body? Because other people are kicking my ass. I'm a tiny man. I can't do this. I can't do that. Every time I, I go out there, there's people beating me. He takes for granted that he has a competitive mindset. Then he had a dream. I, I secretly harbored a dream. My will to power kicked in. In this dream, I wanted to be the strongest man in all of Japan. No, the entire world, because there might be someone outside Japan that threatens me. So I decided I would become the possessor of a martial power unequaled by anyone. And I would never feel threatened again. And I would never have this fear, this terrible feeling in me that's plaguing me every day. It would finally be gone. In my own school, this is that ego tripartite functioning full steam ahead. This is spiritual immaturity. This is why we train. This is all those people, regardless of Ichire and now he, regardless the statistical probability of you reaching communion with this deity, is unlikely the majority of the world lives like this and the majority of Aikido practitioners do Aikido like this, therefore. But you see, he was a man that was already practicing self-examination. He already had the drives and the capacities. He had his capacity for a sense of shame. He had his capacity uh, to seek the truth. Do you see? He's not going to hide himself from himself. He was already educated in Shikon. So he's examining himself. He's out there walking in the garden. And he's thinking. He's contemplating. He's measuring himself. He is practicing the way. He is looking for proximity to the wisdom path. And then he had an ecstatic experience.
Eventually, I attained the feeling that my body was turned into a body of cold that expanded to universal proportions. Now, most people look at this and go, yeah, that looks like a pretty positive experience. And it's because you're a materialist. You're a good modern. How did O Sensei understand that experience? It's in the next line that most people don't read. The next line reads, Here I felt that the gods were chastising me for my ever-growing conceit. Was not a good thing. It's it is many myths do this. It's like, hey, what do you what do you want, a hero? Oh, I want this. Okay, look, here it is. Oh, it sucks. You want to be the most powerful, the most loved person. People bow down before you. Here, you're made of gold. Oh, crap. No, this is not what I wanted. This is not. And he sees through it. And what does he do? I cried tears of gratitude. Again, we, you, this is so common to these mystical traditions. This, this story, reading it right here, it reminds me of the book of Job. For those who don't know the book, a short summary. There's a man named Job. He lives a good life. What he understands is a good life. And he lives in a culture that believes from their human point of view, which is ethnocentric, and which is distance-causing to the divine. It's egocentric. That egocentric culture holds that God is knowable and understandable and can be manipulated in wherein if you live a good and righteous life, then good and righteous things happen to you. Many people hold this view still. But they didn't read the last line. They didn't read the end of the book. So for circum for reasons out entirely out of Job's control, bad things start happening to him and his surroundings. And he can't let go that he understands this being that is beyond all understanding. He can't let go. He's not examining himself deeply enough. 
He thinks he has the truth, but he does not have the truth. He has his truth, and his truth is not the truth. So he starts to talk about justice from his truth. And he, in his mind, builds up a pretty good case against God. That he does not deserve this, that this should not happening, you're not following the rules, yada, yada, yada. And I'm summarizing this really quickly. And eventually God shows up. Boom! And through various visions and various questions, various exposures, Job realizes he doesn't know shit. That he was wrong. That he... He, he cannot know. And here Osensei cried tears of gratitude for having been shown the error of his ways. And Job says he's thankful for realizing he is dust. It's the same experience. It is the birth of the freedom that comes to us through humility. The dropping of pride. Continuing, this is me now opining. Is it too far of a stretch to suggest that O-sensei penetrated through the delusion of material reality by having or receiving a vision of himself at its extremes as a gold body? In his quest for the fame of being the world's most powerful martial artist, did he finally come to see the idiocy of his desire after he achieved a victory that at one time would have been deemed important by him, but that could no longer be experienced as such? Did O-sensei realize the meaninglessness of that power? I say yes. Did he, did he have the Job realization, I am dust? And the liberation that comes from that realization? I say yes. Now, as a human being made of gold, as a human being made of gold that was the size of the universe it would itself, it would seem competing with God. Was it from there that he realized that even if the whole world would come to desire him, he would still be lost to the truth of his existence? It would seem so. 
you know, this part here reminds me of uh, how many movie stars, Hollywood types, have this same kind of fear and threat. I feel unwell inside, dissatisfied. Maybe if everyone start, started loving me, I'd feel better. And then we see, and they do get famous, and everyone knows them. But are they better? How many people say, I want to learn, I want to, I, I love singing, I want to learn to sing, I love singing it. And then that's their justification for getting into entertainment business. I was like, wait, you could sing anywhere. You're not really doing it for the love of singing. You're doing it for the fame. There's something, something superficial in there. And whatever it is, it's not at your immediate grasp of awareness. Well, I think what O-sensei did here, when he became a gold body and that was the size of all creation itself, and he saw like, mm, this, isn't, this isn't it. He's practicing this shikon. Continuing. It would seem that his tears of gratitude came to him because of the grace he received. This was a grace that exposed him to the lie he was living by failing to harmonize more properly the various aspects of his soul with the spiritual aspect of God that was within him. In other words, Ichide Shikon. For did he not, in seeking supremacy over another man, through martial prowess, come to corrupt the workings of his soul by allowing himself to practice various forms of hostility, depravity, rebellion, and insanity. So remember, when the shikon uh, degenerates, instead of affinity, love, um, wisdom, etc., you get hostility, depravity, rebellion, and insanity. So let's just ask. If I think I'm going to satisfy this fear in me, this terrible feeling that I have in me, the one that's driving me to try to gain power over everyone, ever, the entire whole world, is that not hostility, depravity, rebellion, and insanity? Yes, it is. And so is big man Aikido. Is it not a hostile and depraved act to combat another human being when reasons 
for when reasons of fame and glory underlie one's motivations, is it not a kind of rebellion against one's own nature and against God, as Motokyo understands the concept, to seek material power and or any power outside of mystical union? Are not such quests for this kind of power a distraction or a departure from the work that allows us to finally discover to discover what is real and important? Is it not insane to choose a much lesser power over such an obviously greater power, to look to be great before other corrupted men than to seek to be great before God? Whatever we may think, it seems very apparent that O-sensei answered all of these questions in the way that Onisaburo had led him to. For in O-sensei's vision, we see the degenerative soul aspect drives of hostility, depravity, rebellion, and insanity, replaced by the harmonious soul aspect drives of self-examination, repentance, shame, and awakening to the truth. Through his tears, water of salt, O Sensei seemed able to purify his soul of the corrupted aspects by examining his inner self, by repenting for what he saw through his self-examinations, by feeling a sense of shame that would, that would repulse him from ever acting that way again, and by seeing the truth of God's way within himself. This is a great contrast from what we see in the moral causes or, and or the ontological accomplishments of other Buddha. O Sensei writes, In the past, there have been a number of superlative masters of martial arts, but we should never forget the great number of them who disappeared on the battlefield of this material world simply for lack of enough training in the true spirit of Budo, in sincere love, and in the battle against the self. Unquote. So I had another listener um, who requested another podcast on the uh, death-bringing sword and the life-giving sword. So Satsujinkin and Katsujinkin. And just uh, for her, this part here, this is the death-bringing sword, are these states of spiritual immaturity and the life-bringing sword, spiritual maturity. Or using a Motokyo theology, this Ichide Shinkon, is going to be your life-bringing sword. And when you allow the degenerative aspects, hostility, rebellion, insanity, etc., that is the death-bringing sword. And that's what we'll be discussing in that podcast. We'll go into more depth. Continuing. No matter what form the ontology of Ichide Shinkon may be represented through, any corresponding practices refer back to this above-mentioned theology in Omotokyo. This is true whether these aspects of the soul are represented with sounds, such as su, kami, elements, colors, shapes, directions, etc., 
We can see this point being made by O-sensei when he writes, quote, When a person stands before a shrine and prays his silent prayers, it is for no other purpose than to unify himself with the Godhead. So, when you dig deeper into a Motokyo theology, and this is what I discuss in those first four pages that we skipped over, it is, because it's a concentric episteme, everything is ordered according to this concentric nature. And uh, it, from a modern episteme, from a scientific episteme, seems overly complex and convoluted. And this, you hear a lot of those modern uh, deshi that were listening to O-senseis speak. It was like, oh my God, there's so much. He's all over the place. I'm not getting it. So you'd have like this direction goes with this sound, goes with this month, goes with that season, goes with this planet. And it, it goes on and on and on. But the single, the single thread that, is, that works its way or weaves its way through all of these things is this, is this Ichire Shinkon. And you'll see the final two as well. And this is how, this is what opened the door for O-sensei to understand his art as this practice as this practice itself. So as big guy Aikido is not this practice, true Aikido is this practice. It is nothing more than this Ichire Shinkon. And everything is this. So of course his Aikido is this. And so that's what you do. When you, when you go into a shrine and you pray, that's what you're doing. You're seeking communion. You're seeking communion through these four soul aspects and their corresponding positive drives and capacities. So that's what you're doing when you're practicing Aikido. You're not exercising and you're not talking about talking things. You're not a jargonite talking with jargon. There is a path. You practice it. But as I said, most schools have no idea. What, what are you talking about? I just, I do a little bow. I make sure my shoes are off. It's very important that my gi top is either white or unbleached and my hakama is on and it's a contrasting color. No, God forbid. I don't even believe in God. But if he did, if he was there, God forbid that you wear a blue key top and a blue hakama. No, thank you. Okay, so I do my little bow in. I do a warm up. I practice these techniques for forever. And then they're going to give me a paper. I'll get a rank and then I'll go home. Anything else? No, that's it. That's a degenerative state of the art. One out of ignorance. One because people don't do the archaeology. 
Continuing, as for example, ritual or ruled government behavior in such a theological system would seek to cultivate those essences and aspects of our inner being by having us practice self-examination, a sense of shame, repentance, and truth. It would seem that O-sensei would have us also understand his art in this manner as, as well. That means when you do your Aikido, you're supposed to have these drives, self-examination, a sense of shame, repentance, and truth. This means for O-sensei, if he did think of Aikido as an act of purification or as a ritual act, Aikido is a practice that must function through Ichirei Shikon, and thus it is a practice that aims at union with God. He writes, quote, Aikido is the Buddha which opens the road to harmony. It is that which is at the root of the great spirit of reunification of all manifest creation. That's what you're doing. That's what Aikido is. It is one more version of the path of mystical communion. Continuing. As we can now note, we are to understand Ichide and Shikon to be related terms or concepts. In the same way, we are to understand Sangen and Hachiriki to be interrelated. In addition, the two couplings, Ichide Shikon and Sangen Hachiriki, relate to each other by understanding the whole of Ichide, Ichide Shikon Sangen Hachiriki to note the three attributes of the Godhead. So here's more theology from Omoto Kyo. And here you're going to see more borrowing from that world religion, international world religion movement that they involved themselves in and more syncretic aspects to it. What are the three attributes of the Godhead? The three attributes of God are his spirit, his body, and his power or his, his force or energy. So you have this too in Christianity, for example. You have God, you have Jesus, and you have the Holy Spirit. The three attributes are related as the following. God's spirit correlates to Ichide Shinkon, his body to Sangen. And you gotta, I have here his in quotes because that would make God subject to dichotomy and understandable, and that, that is not the God they're talking about, okay? Language fails us when we're talking about this kind of deity. And his power to Hachiriki. When Onisaburo looked out upon the world in noting that everyone and everything is of God, Ichide, he conceived of God as a kind of ultimate Purusha figure. This is from Indian mythology. In Ichide Shikon Sangen Hachiriki, God's spirit is at the core of everything created. So, for example, when that spirit is in human beings, that's the now he. And because the world was taken, has taken form, God's body is at the core of every form, Sangen. And because the world is marked by action, means the world moves, things move, things change, everything's changed, doesn't say the same. God's power or force is at the core of every movement, Hachiriki. 
then is a formula for living the spiritual life by realizing every aspect of the created universe to be an aspect of God and therefore a call for our mystical reunion with God. Because God's nature, meaning God is in everything at a spiritual level, at a material level, and at an energetic level. There's nothing that is not of this thing. is also a call for the cultivation and practice of love. Why? Because love is the very aspect of God. Love is communion itself. So to seek communion with the deity is to be in love with the deity. And you, you're here. Love, to be in love with love, is you just love is. Everything is love. Everything is this uh, force this body, this spirit, and everything of this force, this body, this spirit is about uniting communion. It is love itself. O Sensei, it seems, thought of Aikido as a way of reconciling our lives with this formula. With the, so most people say reconciling the world. Yes, with this formula with the fundamental aspect of God, and thus with ourselves. We see this idea when he suggests that Aikido is a good remedy for the weak. Note, the article translates this as being weak body, weak-bodied. But in all likelihood, O-sensei was referring to those individuals that cannot live in harmony with the universal God or with the formula of Ichide Shikon Sangen Hachiriki. Remember that the degenerative state of Shikon leads to insanity. Okay. In my opinion, O Sensei is not referring to a weakness of limb, and thus he is not posting Aikido as a fine physical fitness regiment. We can note this in the remedy O-sensei offers at the end of the article. So remember I told you this piece I'm writing is response to another article. And in that article, in that, in that article, it's a translation of a speech that O-sensei did to, a to an Aikido Dojo's group, but that group was uh, heavy into this theology. Okay? And they asked him, hey, uh, what should we do to get better at our art? Nowadays, you ask a shihan that, and they're like, uh, more shoman subudi or more suwadi waza. You know, they'll do stuff like that. What did Osensei answer? No, not that. So we can note this in the remedy Osensei offers at the end of the article when the people ask that question. He does not tell people to practice more suwadi waza or to do more subudi training. Instead, he opts to help them by sharing with him his daily routine of religious practices. In other words, he tells them how he practices ichire shikon sangen hachiriki. 
Thus, we can see O-sensei is referring to the weakness that comes to us through a spiritual corruption of the total self. So remember, the degenerative states of Shikon is insanity, right, for example. I mean, look at the world today. Is this wholly inaccurate? Imagine you're living on that fear, threat, reactivity, behavioral pattern. Everything is a threat to you. Everything is, a, is, is, is stimulating your will to power and the delusion that you could actually achieve the, the, the cessation of that sense of weakness by being the most powerful being in the universe. You, you, you can't. You can't. Aikido is not about being powerful. It is about gaining skill in non-contestation. It is about developing ourselves in a way through self-examination and through wisdom, etc. That I can deconstruct my participation in the power struggle. Because participation in the power struggle, holding on to the, the, the delusion that you can finally be rid of fear through power, is insanity. And leads to markers of insanity that we moderns still recognize. Anxiety, depression, addiction, a sense of meaninglessness, unwellness. Continuing. Such a weakness then is a kind of incapacity to fulfill our human destiny to become one with God. Remember, that's part of Emoto Kyo theology. This is what you're supposed to do. Or to live in harmony with the nature of the universe. Because if you don't, you're going to go insane. That's, this is Emoto Kyo theology. In such a suggestion, when he notes that the problem with the weak-bodied people of today is that they are unable to survive in a world of absolute accord and absolute non-desire. He tells us exactly what Aikido is and what it is supposed to do. Aikido is a path for union with God. It is a path for regaining our spiritual self as we distance ourselves from material culture. In the phrase Ichide Shikon Sangen Hachiriki, we come to know how and why this is possible. Let me make another side note here. Remember that this type of thinking is using the concentric uh, episteme. And I pointed out already that this formula will take shape with sounds. Um, diagrams of the body, months, seasons, etc. You're going to see it everywhere. But its underlying theology is all of those things. So let's say you're doing Kotodama, and you're doing Su. You, that sound is part of this very practice. It's not its own magical, talismanic um you know, magic. No. No. 
You're not understanding. So if you haven't noticed, in the Motokyo theology, they draw this distinction um, or this contrast with material culture. And this goes back to that international religious movement. You know, and there's still this idea um, out there, you see, um, that war, and you know, remember they were concerned with ex extinction of human, of the human uh, animal through war. That war is, is, is a matter of resources, the scarcity of resources. And so our attachment to uh, material things was problematized by this movement. And that did carry over into um, Omotokyo. And you do see that in, in most traditions where the practice is aimed at a reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy. You will see prescriptions against material investment, material accumulation, material involvement. And Omotokyo is, is joining in that thing. So several times they talk about this material culture. You know, if you would, look, if you would just chill out and you would find out that, you know, the material world is not all that it's claiming to be or my speak, that's just more of your, your, your delusion that you'd finally get rid of that ache in you, that sense of meaningless, that fear that won't go away if you finally had enough things. It's not true. We see this also in like lottery winners. Guess what? You're still suffering. You're just now suffering in a house you're, that's big enough, you know, for all your crap, but you're still lonely. You're still depressed. So and here in this in the article, I go into a little side note of more, uh, not necessarily, I, we, we wouldn't call this in scholars of religion, we wouldn't call this theology, we would call this cosmology. So this is a motokyo uh, cosmology. Okay, how do they understand the cosmos? It starts as a note. So before continuing on to discuss Sangen and Hachidiki in more detail, I thought it interesting that Osensei marked the week with the with both an incapacity to live in accordance with the with Ichide and with an incapacity to practice non desire, which we should which we should note as non desire towards material things. This is in line with the Motokyo theological stance on material culture. For example, Motokyo considers earth to be marked by various ages or periods of time. These ages are all defined according to the spiritual regression of man, it being directly related to man's attachment to material culture. So for those who know Thomas Merton, this sentiment is expressed in his famous um, maxim that our proximity to God is proportionate to our distance from the world. This is that same concept, okay? So in Omotokyo cosmology, 
there was time is divided up and you have this in Japan and East Asia they have for for example um, we're now in the Buddhist age of Mapo it's a stage of degeneration it's a stage where enlightenment is not truly uh, possible in today's current environment because the teachings have been corrupted to such a degree and human beings have been corrupted to such a degree that now we have to actually pray uh, to the Bodhisattva who will uh, uh, bring us uh, through rebirth or through miracle into a pure land and that is a land from which awakening is actually still possible. Okay, so you always have these kind of cosmological breakdowns of time. This is a motokyos. The first age is the age of gods. In this stage, humans on earth were capable of very high states of spirituality and were thus able to mingle with celestial beings and discarnate entities. This is kind of like we were in the Garden of Eden, right? When God walked in the garden, we saw, hey, God, how's it going? It's going okay. How are you? I'm all right. You know, it's like that kind of thing. And then more time passes. We're in the second age. This is the age of silver. In this stage, man was still capable of mingling with celestial beings, but here he also began to seek mundane knowledge, and thus he began to deviate from the laws of heaven and earth. So remember, I told you Omotokyo is syncretic, so this law of heaven and earth, that's where you're getting your Taoist flair in there. Um, and uh, again, you know, at this point, we actually are hanging out with the deities. We're hanging out with them. Um, but we're all, I'm a, uh, you know, I can't talk now, God. I got to do something. I got this other thing going on. Well, what's that? Yeah, you know, it's just my thing. I'm doing my, my other thing. I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. It's that kind of thing, right? And then third age, age of copper. In this stage, while, he re while man remained aware of the laws of heaven and earth, man no longer relied upon them to make decisions. I, I'm full on doing my own thing, right? Uh... The fourth stage, the age of iron. In this stage, man disregarded the laws of heaven and earth entirely, and thus he became materialistic. So he, he didn't listen to Merton. Okay, I don't have distance from the material world, so I don't have proximity to God. As a result, man lost his knowledge on the spiritual world. Virtue disappears from man's everyday existence, but truth remains. So truth, it's out there, but you're not practicing it. You could figure it out. You know, um, you're going to need a, a way or something, some teacher or something to help you. And and the celestial deities, they're gone. You're, you can't hang with them anymore. They're still there, but you can't hang with them anymore. And then the fifth stage is the age of mud. In this stage, man progresses materially as he continues to regress spiritually. Here, both virtue and truth disappear from man's daily existence. Now in this age, in the age we are now in, man must work to discover for himself both virtue and truth. To do this, man must distance himself from the trend toward materiality, that is, from his desires for material things and for superficial knowledge, or that is, man must practice this path of Ichide, ichide san um, Shikon Sangen Hachiriki. In the end, it's the end of the side note, continuing. In the end, like all mystical traditions, as we can see here in Osensei, Omotokyo approximates one's closeness to God with one's distance from the material world. Voila, Merton. 
In classic fashion, we thus see O-sensei opting to increase his distance from the material world and from people attached to the material world when he writes, quote, Even so, as I traveled down this path, I found human interactions had become more and more of a hindrance. So I moved up to Tokyo and now I have retreated to a farm in Iwama, in Ibaraki Prefecture. It seems that by lessening my interaction with human beings, I am much more able to actively intuit the principle of oneness with the universe. Unquote. That is interesting. Especially since a lot of his so-called deshis come from this period of time. So what is Sangin as the body attribute of God? Sangin are the three irreducible elements of the physical world. And again, you see this throughout these traditions. They're like, okay, let's get to the core of what the material world is. And you get these kind of weird uh, uh, lexicons. Uh, they're weird to me because they're not necessary. You don't, you don't, just as you don't, have to have 10,000 concentric um, manifestations of something. You don't need to get to the bottom one, two, or three either at the level of practice. Okay, that's my opinion. Um, so that they're going to get to the three most irreducible elements of the physical world, and that is God. And he is, or it is, or what is, whatever. God is going to be combinations of these three irreducible elements of materiality, okay? <clears throat> Many East Asian traditions have such a notion. Excuse me for that. However, there's not a single understanding of what these elements are or how, how they fit in with one's practice. For a motokyo, in terms of matter, in terms of God's body, the world of existence can be broken down into the categories of mineral, plant, and animal. These are the Sangen of a Motokyo. As I said above, we are to think of the Sangen and the Hachiriki as interrelated. These Sangen, that is God's body or the world of matter, consist of subtle and intricate combinations of the Hachiriki or the eight powers or the eight forces. So in other words, these three um, um, material manifestations are themselves made up of forces or energies, uh, which are different combinations of yin and yang energies. And in this way, it ties itself back to the Book of Changes and yin-yang theory. Again, Omotokyo is a syncretic religious tradition. The eight powers or forces, Hachiriki, are varying degrees of the union of yin and yang energies, which are the forces of God's movement or action or energy. The eight types of energies, i.e. varying degrees of union of yin and yang, are an activating force, a quieting force, a melting force, a coagulating force, a pulling force, a loosening force, a combining force, and a dividing force. Because of their interdependency of God's spirit to God's energy to God's body, force or energy on this plane of existence also has the capacity to interrelate 
power force energy to matter shape form. These combinations or energy mark the mineral, the plant, and animal aspects of creation. However, because all of these things are of God, as we are of God as well, and as these things are also of God's power, the Sangen also function within the microcosm of our being. For example, the mineral aspect is used to fasten our soul to our physical body. The plant aspect is used to enrich the animal aspect. I'm sorry, to enrich us. The animal aspect is used to animate us with life. So do you see, these systems of concentric thought just go on and on and on ad infinitum. My position is, don't get lost in that. Continuing. As with the Shikon, the Sangen and the Hachiriki also correspond to numerous other things, feelings, directions, colors, sounds, shapes, kami, inumotokyo. These correlations are used ritually to bring a sense of being, of the presence and in the presence of God, and or God's primary attribute of love, which can be thought of as the ultimate power of God. It is important to understand this sense of power that is quite particular to Omotokyo and thus most likely to Osensei as well. Please note the following two passages. The first one is considered an Omotokyo maxim. Onisaburo authors it. Quote, God is the spirit which pervades the entire universe, Ichiden, and man is the focus of the workings of heaven and earth. So that is ancient, what has become Chinese thought. When God and man become one, so mystical communion, infinite power will become manifest. Now, please note the following passage written by Osensei in the related article. Thus, by imbibing the principle of the universal, that is God, and receiving the key of heaven and earth, so that is the natural workings of heaven and earth, when I unified this entire human body, so he gets this internal or concentric communion within himself, I realize the subtle depth of Aikido that manifests such great power and attain the power of oneness with the universe, which is God. O Sensei is simply seeing his practice through this theology, which in this particular case is a Motokyo theology, but ultimately is mystic uh, uh, in nature. Remembering that the universe is equivalent with God, we see that O-sensei is opting to follow the Omotokyo maxim perfectly, suggesting that his realizing of the subtle depth of Aikido and the manifestation of great power is directly attributed to him having attained a mystical union with God. Whatever this power is, or however it may be applied, for better or worse, we know from what Osensei says earlier in this article that he is not referring to the kind of power that makes one unequal in martial prowess. That's not the power he's talking about. That's the power he cried over. 
It's not the kind of power that comes to you by trying to be the strongest martial artist in the world. If anything, O-sensei's shared confession suggests such a quest as a quest of the ego or of selfish desire or pursuing material or worldly things prevents us from attaining the infinite power of which Onisaburo speaks. The power he pointed O-sensei toward and the power O-sensei seems to be pointing us toward that is the power of Aikido. That is the power of communion with God. Now, that ends the piece. And I said I would give my own personal opinion. And I did kind of weave it in there prematurely. For example, I don't think we ought to get lost in the um, infinite amount of concentric representations yeah, uh, in Emoto Kyo theology, it's very common. Like, which way? Wait, how? What is? Is that Yin or is that Yang? Is it this sound or that sound? Is it this color or that color? You're 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 missing the point. You're missing the point. But this theology, like all theology, is somebody trying to explain the process to somebody who has not had the experience. And as God is beyond all understanding and knowability, that's, that, that is a being of which would prompt one of the best of us to just be thankful that he is dust. This process, this experience is itself beyond knowability and words. Our clinging to words and to intellectual understanding is probably something that is part of our humanity. But as we have, let's just use a Motokyo cosmology, as we've entered into an age of our kind, that preferencing for knowing things intellectually has made us ill-equipped to understand both God and the practice and the experience and why we instead want to have things explained to us. For the mystic, all theology is false. Theology is only true for the priest, the person not having the experience. And as a historian, I came across no better example of this than the one I'm going to share now. So I, I'm going, I have listeners who probably don't know this history, who probably aren't from a culture, um, a, a Judaic Christian culture, so uh, just let me preface this with a slight um, brief historical introduction. So in the 1200s, there was a Catholic uh, intellectual. And to be an intellectual in the 1200s, you were in the church. And his name was uh, Aquinas. And Aquinas was uh, very interested in using reason and Greek 
argument to justify the existence of God and the centrality of Jesus. And he, um, it's really him who opened this door for the, for the, um, what ultimately became the overthrowing of the Catholic um, Church from institutional centrality by the application of reason. It, the church had for let's just think about it this is in around 1273 um aquinas is 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 already applying reason from within the church and it took how many years later before you started to see reason um being used against the church the the only the reason why it's possible to use uh, reason against the church is because it was already in the church. Aquinas brought it into the church to the umpteenth degree. And he was going to prove what the mystics knew outside of the intellect. You see, he was going to prove it with the intellect. He, he's one of the key figures that made the opening for the modern epistemy. Aquinas is. So he, he's writing this big, huge treatise called the Summa Theologia or Theologica. Depend, people translate it different, pronounce it different. He's, he's writing this huge work and uh, the church can't wait for it to finish because we're going to prove it. Remember, this is a whole bunch of people that haven't had mystical communion. They haven't had the ecstatic experience. So they don't know it. Or as my, my academic mentor, one of them used to say, they don't know it. They don't have a gnosis of it. They don't have a firsthand experience of it. They want to know it though. So they want to know it through the intellect through reason. This is entirely outside of the teachings of the prophet Jesus, by the way. But this is what happens as culture moves. So he's writing this huge work and everyone can't wait for him to finally finish. They've read already portions of it, major portions of it. It's just enormous. And he's going to finally get his conclusion out. And on the eve of finishing this work, guess what? He has an ecstatic experience. And he had some another monk that was helping him write this work. And the monk, at a certain point, after this ecstatic experience, he, you know, comes to Aquinas and says, "Hey, uh, let's let's keep going. We're almost done." And guess what Aquinas says and does? He says, "The end of my labors has come." All that I have written appears to be as so much straw after the things that have been revealed to me. I can write no more. 
I have seen things that make my writings like straw. This is why I say, don't get caught in the theology. Stick to the principles. If you get trapped in the particulars, you'll lose yourself in the particulars. It'll feel like you're not lost. It will feel like you're on the path. But those particulars are nothing but straw. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.